This morning in the Atlanta airport, no one's missing a meal on Mac Wilburn's watch. With 11 restaurants to serve passengers, he's got dining for every destination. And it all started when Mac talked with First Horizon Bank about opening a franchise in the airport. Now it's open for business and cleared for takeoff. First Horizon Bank, let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com slash Mac. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC. Your favorite PGA and LPGA legends, pros, and top instructors are right here every week on Next on the Tee. Join Chris as the greats of the game share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Now, back to Chris and more of the show. All right, now back with me here on Next on the Tee is Tony Jacklin. Let me remind you about Mr. Jacklin's background. He turned pro at the age of 17 back in 1962. In 1968, he became the first European player to win on the PGA Tour since the 1920s at the uh, Jacksonville Open Invitational. A year later, he won his first major at the Open Championship at Royal Lytham in St. Anne's. In 1970, he won the U.S. Open at Hazeltine, becoming the first British player to win the U.S. Open since Ted Ray in 1920. In 1985, he captured, uh, captained, I should say, the European team to a Ryder Cup victory, which marked the first loss by the U.S. team since 1957. Back that up with a second consecutive Ryder Cup win in 1987, marking the first ever U.S. loss on American soil. He would go on to make it a three-peat for Europe in 1989. 2002, he was elected into the World Golf Hall of Fame. 2006, he and Jack Nicklaus opened a concession club in Bradenton, Florida, commemorating the putt conceded by Mr. Nicklaus to Mr. Jacklin, which ensured the 1969 Ryder Cup competition would end in a draw. In all, Mr. Jacklin has won eight times on the European Tour, four times on the PGA Tour, and twice on the Senior Tour. He has a wonderful new book that is hitting stores today titled Bad Lies, A Story of Libel, Slander, and Professional Golf, which he wrote alongside Shelby Yastro. And I'm honored that he is back with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Good evening, Mr. Jacklin. Thank you for coming back on the show. It's my pleasure, Chris. Thank you. So, Mr. Jacklin, let's start out by talking about your new book, which is a uh, fictional account of a guy named Eddie Benison, who is having a lot of success out on the Champions Tour until a Golf Magazine article accuses him of cheating and doping. So I'm curious, what inspired you to write a book like that? Well, it, it wasn't me. It was a chance meeting, actually, with uh, my co-author, Shelby, at the Ryder Cup uh, at Hazeltine. We, we hit it off together, and he'd already written a couple of uh, uh, novels, and uh, he told me that he was working on this book about golf. He's an avid golfer. He's crazy for the game. And uh, uh, he gave me the outline of the book. We, 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 we went beyond that. I started collaborating with him, and... Uh, you know, I was intrigued by the whole uh, the the story, the way it was all done. The golf aspect was, uh, I mean, he's Shelby's just an unbelievable uh, avid amateur, and I think I was able to bring some perspective of the professional game into it for him. Uh, it's a fascinating read. It's a, it's a terrific read, and uh, you know, here we go. You know, eighteen months or. Almost two years later, uh, we're launching it, and uh, it's a very exciting time for both of us. 
And Mr. Jacqueline, you even weave, you guys weave into the story a woman accusing Dennison, the main character, right, of physical abuse. So this is kind of a, a complete destruction of the man's character. Talk about that and, you know, bringing all of that together um, in, into a kind of a, a world about, you know, First Amendment rights, free speech, and how it's both a sword and a shield. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it was uh, it was Charlie Mayfair, the lawyer, uh, uh, the defense, uh, his job to keep that story out of the courtroom. And it goes back and forth. The characters are in this thing are so strong. And uh, that, in fact, the first time I read it, uh, and I said to my wife, "You know, this is this has got this is a move. This is movie stuff." And uh, I mean, obviously, Benison was devastated when these uh, stories came out. And golf, confidence of a golfer, the very fine line you 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 have to straddle to be a, a great player. His confidence was wrecked after these articles were written about him. Uh, the whole courtroom thing and back and forth between the courtroom and golf. Uh, it's it's just a fascinating read it all together. And just a a couple more on the book, and, it, and you know, like I say, it's 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 a bit about it, at least it comes across to me as a, about First Amendment rights, but it also sort sort of seems to me like it is a commentary a bit about you know our media, and then sort of a statement on society and and what it's like out there for you know, the, the professional athletes today. Is, is all of that really the, the story about, you know, the underlying story of the story? Uh, absolutely. And I remember in my early days when, you know, when I was in my pomp, you know, the British press were a tough bunch. And uh, you, you get a lot of stuff written about you from time to time that's just not uh, uh, exactly true. Uh, you know, sometimes they... They make stuff up, and uh, this is this is uh, that this is why I was drawn into this. Uh, I, in many ways, you know, I left Britain uh, as a young man because I I hated what was happening through the media to me. You know, I mean, there were take there was different opinions from different uh, fronts, uh, and they didn't always know what they were talking about. And and it's not the right place. It's not where you want to be. Uh, so. I've, I've been living outside of Britain for quite some many years now, in part because of that. And uh, when I when I read about Benison's predicament, as it were, uh, I became, uh, you know, it, I couldn't help but uh, sympathise. And uh, anyway, you, you read it; it's it's a terrific uh, it's a terrific story. Um, and, uh, you know, as I say, that self-confidence that he had winning the tournaments he won was obviously dented by these uh, malicious uh, articles that were written. And, uh, uh, and there's great stuff in there with caddies and old stuff that I contributed uh, from days past and, you know, great players involved in it all. It's, uh, it was fun, a lot of fun. 
Mr. Jacqueline, it would seem to me, you know, looking back over the breadth of your career, right, and, and some of the things you just mentioned, you know, the things that that happened to you or were said about you and, and those sorts of things, did, did, do you remember, was there a point in time, and I've wondered about this in, in lots of different aspects, not only on this show and other shows that I do, but the media changed at some point in time from uh, d delivering the news and reporting on the news to reporting on sensationalism and and what could you know get more headlines or get somebody to you know now in today's society right get more clicks on the internet and that sort of thing. Do, do you remember was there a point in time that you saw that things sort of flipped from being about the news to being about sensationalism? Oh, absolutely, I remember. But I mean, I think in I think Britain uh, back in the sixties was ahead of America in the sensationalism. And, uh, you know, in, in my sport, I was sort of central to that. And a lot of it was very hurtful. And, uh, you know, I was, I was quite sensitive, emotional, if you like. Um, you know, we're not machines and uh, you can't help but read the press. And when, when you're reading stuff that's basically made up, it, 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 it it's hurtful. And, uh, uh, it's it's all changed. I, I actually found that the American press were a lot more straightforward and, uh, than than the Brits were back then. I'm going back 40, 50 years. But uh, you know everything changes, and uh, certainly this social media and uh, sensationalism that exists today. I mean, you know, look at our president. He has to. Uh, he, he's he's the brunt of most of it, and. Uh, you know, he's got to be very thick-skinned on that basis. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's a very typical topical story right now. I mean, it's... So, are you, you mentioned this is sort of the stuff of movies. Is that where you'd like to see this ultimately go? Can you see a movie project coming out of this book? Well, uh, that was the first thing I saw. The, the characters in it are so strong. Uh, that um, it just jumped out at me. Uh, now, whether whether that happens or not, uh, we'll see. But uh, 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 Mayfield, the lawyer, is is such a strong character. He's actually the main character. It's not Eddie Benison. It's his it's his defender in court that is the true character in this story. And uh, you know how the the things he has to deal with and, and we uh, Jack Jack Nicholas was kind enough to uh, do a little uh, bleep for us and uh, you know it, it says you know it's a bit like around the golf and I never realized it at the time but uh, you know around the golf is all about the bounces and how quickly you, you can recover from the bad bounces if you like and in a courtroom it's it's very much the same for, for, the, for that legal man, uh, you never know what uh, a witness is going to say, and how quickly can you recover from, you know, a slipped word or a slipped statement? It's uh, it was it's all fascinating and a wonderful experience. I didn't think at this time in my life I was going to have so much fun doing anything. Honestly, it was uh, it was a great great privilege to be involved in it. So do you see yourself getting involved in more fictional stories kind of like this? Well, uh, you know, I, wouldn't, I would never say never. Uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this exercise and working with Shelby 
who, you know, his background is, is the uh, top legal counsel for McDonald's. Uh, he's to hear some of his stories uh, of the old days in Chicago. Uh, it's, it's all been fascinating, and our wives gelled uh, wonderfully. We've, we've had some wonderful times over this. It's been fun more than anything, and if we succeed with it, well, that, that's... Uh, that's a bonus, Mr. Jacklin. I want to I want to talk a little bit about your career before we let you go. And and um, everyone seems always like to talk about the putt on the last hole of the '69 Ryder Cup that Mr. Nicholas conceded to you. But I, I want to go one hole back because on 17, you made a 50 foot eagle putt to keep that match going. What was it like yeah. to make a putt of that nature, you know, when you had to have it in, in a pressure situation like that? Well, I can only tell you, you know, I was 25 years old. And as a 25-year-old, you think all things are possible. You think you're immortal, I suppose. And I had all the confidence in the world. I, we, we play the 18 holes in the morning, and I, 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 I beat Jack four and three in the morning. I was, I was on top of my game. I was pretty confident. I lost the 16th hole. We were all, all square after 15, and I lost the 16th. I made bogey there, and Jack made par. But to hold that putt on the 17 from 50 feet, and he was inside me for the for his eagle. Uh, you know that was a real. A hammer blow to him. Uh, it, it was a sensational week. You know, obviously we, as a team, uh, Great Britain and Ireland in those days, it was it was before the Europe Europe got involved. Uh, it was the first time we'd really done anything in 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 Ryder Cup for uh, well since since '57. So it was uh, it was an important time, and uh, for that one to go in was. I'm not saying it was a fluke because I was aiming for the hole and I was trying to make the putt, but for it to happen to go in at that uh, moment in time was uh, extra special. And, of course, Jack ultimately conceding the two-footer was... Uh, I, I mean, I was ready to make it, uh, but, you know, the fact that he picked it, uh, my marker up and conceded was a, a great gesture of sportsmanship and... Uh, an immense relief to me at the time that I didn't have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the Ryder Cups that, that you captained. And, and prior to 1985, whether it was Great Britain or the European team, hadn't won a Ryder Cup since 1929. And here you are leading a team, and you, and you had the likes of Seve and Nick Faldo, Ian Woosnam, Bernard Langer, Sam Torrance, Sandy Lott. You had a great team. What was it like getting those guys to believe something that hadn't been done for nearly 60 years, that this team could come together and do it? Well, it was it was a special time, and timing, I think, you know, when you look back, especially in sports, just, timing is everything. Uh, when I was asked to do it in 83, the circumstances weren't ideal. Uh, I only had six months to prepare to be uh, the, the, the team. I hadn't got any captain's picks. Uh, it was, uh, you know, I had to get things together in very short order. But I, I recognised that really we were being treated like second-class citizens by our own PGA, 
and and I requested that everything be upgraded. You know, we at least when you stood on the first tee, we needed to be even Stephen with our with our American uh, counterparts. They were flying Concorde. We were flying British Airways in economy, not knowing what we were paying for or what anybody was going to give us. We'd wear anything anybody gave us clothing-wise. And I upgraded everything. We got a team room. I organized that because we were having meetings in the corner of locker rooms. Uh, you know, it just it, none of it was ideal. And our self-esteem suffered greatly. Uh, and I played seven matches myself over a 14-year period before I became captain. Uh, and, and, you know, I just knew the way things were done in America. And uh, anyway, once we sorted that out, the players really just were fantastic. They delivered and, and it was a golden time for European golf. We had, as you mentioned, we had the Langers and Woosnams and Faldos. Sevi was already established. Sandy Lyle came into the picture, Alasabel. And, uh, you know, they all rallied and, and, and rose to the occasion. Once the confidence was there and their self-esteem was restored, they delivered like the champions they were. And, uh, and the Ryder Cup's been a, a, an enormous uh, success ever since. We all look forward to it. And, of course, the Ryder Cup, Without that success, the President's Cup wouldn't be there. The, the, people, the guys from Australia and South Africa wanted to, a part of that. They saw the camaraderie and, you know, team spirit that was all going on. And the, the gals also got involved in 93 with the Solheim Cup. And, and all these events now, these team events, have become uh, sensational. The public love them. Uh, and, and and the players also love them. I mean, it's a it's a solitary pursuit for the most part, golf. And to get in that team uh, environment uh, as as we do in Ryder Cup, and it, it's it's so special, and the memories uh, are forever. So uh, it was it was a, a great experience. I wouldn't change anything about my major wins. I wouldn't give them up for the world, but. My Ryder Cup experiences were extraordinary, and uh, I'll take them to the grave. Yeah, just a little bit more on that because that was, you know, my next question. And, and you know, how how did the feeling of that team success, and again, all those years of drought for for the European team, and to get that win, how did that compare with the feelings that you know individually winning the two majors? Well, it was different. It was a different time in my life. I couldn't have captained a Ryder Cup when I won my majors at 25. I hadn't got the maturity or experience. But uh, it, it's hard to put words to it, uh, the satisfaction. You know, you, you're trying to cut. Uh, uh, you're, you're looking at body language of players the whole time. You're, you're trying to be their best friend and wrapping in cotton wool the whole week. Uh, it, it, it was exhausting, uh, uh, you know, to do it, but the satisfaction at the end of it, and as I say, that sort of sense of team, and you, you, you're leaning on guys and having one-on-one -on -one conversations that will always be private, you know, just to motivate them, uh, and to see it all come to fruition with, the, with victory is, is, is hard to put words to. 
suffice to say, uh, you know, there's a very special bond bonding uh, between the players and and the rest of the team was, uh, you know, I've had 33 years now. I think it is to to think about it all. It's uh, it was a great experience and something that I cherish. And and those relationships will go on forever. Mr. Jacqueline, one more before we let you go. And and I saw an interview that you did several years ago regarding your Open Championship victory in 1969. And in the interview, you said. Your overall thought process for the tournament was was to stay close, stay in the hunt, and you never know, it might just be your day. What did you tell yourself the night before as you're, you know, trying to sleep on a two-stroke lead heading into the final round and guys chasing you like, you know, like Mr. Nicholas, Peter Thompson, R- Roberto DiVincenzo, Bob Charles, all right there behind you. What did you tell yourself and and, and were you able to get much sleep? Well, I'll tell you, uh uh I was, we rented a house, Bert Yancey and Tom Weisskopf and our respective wives all stayed together that week. And I took a sleeping pill at about 9, 9.30. And it was actually Bert Yancey guided me upstairs and put me into bed. And I had eight hours solid sleep. So, you know, I, I, it's, it's hard to explain, uh, you know, uh, the mental state. I knew, I knew I needed that sleep. I couldn't have. Uh, I, I, I couldn't have done without that. Uh, I woke up refreshed early the next morning, and then of course you've got this sort of dilemma of waiting half a day before you tee off. I think the tee off time was about two thirty, and uh, all the nerves and trying not to go uh, to the golf course. And or keep your mind away from what may happen. I think I was at a museum or something on the, in the morning, uh, trying to keep my mind away from what could happen that afternoon because it's an in, enormous uh, thing. And the more you want something, of course, the the more likely you are to get ahead of yourself. That's just human nature. But the fact that I was able to deal with it uh, was down to the you know the, I'd, I'd had a couple of years by then playing the American tour. I had my win at Jacksonville in 68. Uh, I knew I was a, a good player, and, and I wanted to be as good as I could be. And uh, I, as I said earlier, I was young. I was resilient. I was, uh, you know, I, w- I was ready, and the time was right. And uh, I managed to, uh, to, 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 to get it done, but it... Uh, I could never underestimate the hurdle. It was, uh, it was, uh, it's a tall order. Winning majors, of course, and I knew winning majors was all it was ever about, really, uh, if you want to be remembered. So uh, I, I've been very fortunate in my life to uh, have uh, won a couple. Of course, I, I went close a couple of times too, but we won't go there. It, 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 suffice to say, I, I was gratified and uh, it was an amazing time in my life especially being so young again the title of Mr. Jacqueline's new book is called Bad Lies a story of libel, slander and professional golf it uh, was released today it's available out on amazon.com 
Mr. Jacqueline, thank you so much for being generous with your time and coming back and uh, being a part of the show tonight. You're fantastic. I've always enjoyed the time I've gotten to spend with you. So I thank you for doing it again tonight, and I hope we get the privilege of doing it again real soon. Thank you, Chris. My pleasure. God bless you. All right. Take care, Mr. Jacqueline. All the best to you and your family. Thank you. That is, again, the great uh, Tony Jacklin. And, again, one more time, the name of the book, Bad Lies, A Story of Libel, Slander, and Professional Golf. Again, it's available today out on Amazon.com. This morning in North Carolina, wheels are spinning. Determination is winning. A passion is now a thriving business, and it shows no signs of slowing down. How? The power of a conversation like the one Clint Spiegel had with First Horizon Bank about starting a bike wheel manufacturing facility in Asheville. Now it's not just talk, it's rubber meets road. First Horizon Bank, let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com slash Clint. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC. Hey, sandwich lovers, today is your lucky day. There's a whole new way to roll for lunch or dinner delight with Nucky's Hoagies in the Roswell Corners Shopping Center. Now open, Nucky's Hoagies in Roswell is family owned and operated by the subsisters, Stacy and Shannon, whose love language is food and Nucky's Hoagies, their passion. When you bite into a Nucky's Hoagie, you'll taste the difference. The softest hoagie rolls ever, along with hunger-quenching sandwich combinations. Make Nucky's Hoagies in Roswell on Woodstock Road your new favorite spot for lunch or dinner. 